president of the Kenyan Cycling Federation had asked me to send some emails from his from his account to help him really with uh, some logistics or something. And while I had his password and his, his login to his email, I basically entered myself into the world championships. My guest on this episode of Beyond Victory is Chris Froome. Chris is a four-time Tour de France winner, which makes him one of the greatest cyclists of all time. He overcame incredible odds from being raised in Kenya to reaching the pinnacle of a global sport. Cycling is such an intense sport. You have to push yourself to the limit and beyond in every training session and every race to squeeze every single drop of performance possible out of it, much like Formula One. We spoke about this, his struggles and challenges as a child. I learned quite a few valuable lessons from my conversation with Chris, and I really hope you guys can learn a few things too. If you're new to the podcast, please subscribe and give me a cool rating. I'd appreciate that. And just for information, we have a new one coming out every two weeks at the moment at 6 p.m. on Mondays. Chris, thank you very much for joining. That's really, really cool. I'm looking forward to the to the chat. How long was the cycling ride today then? Um, today was <laughs> today was today was easy. So today was my only six hours. <laughs> yeah, I wish. I wish. No, today was my recovery day. So I had um, someone over from from Germany looking at my position on the bike, and we were just testing a few different things on the on the time trial bike and and my road bike so just uh, getting a bit of uh, detail done on on one of my recovery days really and how many hours is the recovery day then recovery day is generally one to two hours spinning um the the col de la madone is uh, just behind monaco it's quite a nice climb i normally go up there on my recovery days and just do it like really nice and slowly and just take in a day where where i can just turn over the legs without any pressure or stress let me just fill in the listener about what the Col de Madone is, yeah, since it's your recovery ride. <laughs> I sometimes don't even make it to the top because <laughs> it's our biggest mountain right around Monaco. And it's actually, um, it's the community race course. So ah, all of us hobby cyclists, that's, cool. that's where we measure ourselves. <laughs> Therefore, spontaneously now, I need to ask you for your best time and I'll tell you my best time. I'm actually community champion, by the way. Nobody oh, has ever beaten, impressive. nobody's ever beaten me up there. So, okay, um, I mean, it, it, I will will admit it is a climb where we do go and test ourselves. Uh, often, just before a big event like like the Tour de France, we'll go up there and we'll go absolutely full gas just to see exactly where we're at. And I think the, the fastest I've ever been up there is just over thirty minutes, like thirty minutes and six seconds. But I'll let you in on a little secret. I know someone else who's gone up there quite a bit faster. Really, one one of the local pros living around here, but. Yeah. Really? How? But how is that possible? Be, because it's just on the short, then they're better than, um, than some of the best, or what? Because it's only well, thirty I think, minutes. I think it's always um, it, it's very different testing someone on on a stage of the Tour de France, say okay. five six hours of racing, and then you have to go up a, a mountain like mm -hmm. that. But if you arrive at the foot of the climb like that, completely fresh, 
some guys can can absolutely turn themselves inside out and uh, yeah fly up fly up those kind of climbs. Okay, so yeah, because it's a bit of a difference, huh? But and but here's uh, the real question: is what was what was your time up there? There you go. Thank you very much. <laughs> 4457 4457 was, was my okay. time and that was 200 okay. and 270 watts okay <laughs> wow so uh only 50 uh 50 <laughs> time off that and you'll be the pros oh geez yeah. do you know your wattage <laughs> it was about 470 470 yeah that's incredible that is unbelievable Wow. I, I couldn't even push that for 15 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, it, is, it is my day, day job. So. Yeah. <laughs> awesome stuff. Um, so if it's okay, I wanted to begin really from, from your childhood as well, because you're, you came from such a different path than most others sure. and, and pretty extreme as well. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, I, I was born in, born in Kenya, grew up there. Um, I always, always loved just riding a bike um but it was more transport for me it was never about racing or i actually really enjoyed just doing like stunts and tricks and things like that like jumping around on bikes but it was never serious it was never racing and it was only when when i went to school in south africa as a as a teenager that i was exposed to the the racing side of cycling i i just fell in love with it fell in love with it and um had a few friends who who were riding at the time and just one thing led to another and um it just kept on kept on progressing each year i'd learn more and more and get better and better and all of a sudden i found myself uh, racing in europe so i read that actually you were also living in very very poor circumstances well quite poor circumstances and at some point compared to being here in, in monaco right now yeah. it's uh, it's very different but uh, yeah i wouldn't quite say it was poor i mean i was always uh, always had a roof over my head and good food and everything but um I mean, it certainly had a few uh, hurdles to to overcome along the way. And but I think that's one one point where I wanted to get into actually, which the listeners also maybe can relate with that. You you were someone who didn't really wait for the luck to come to you. You you're like you're more of an executor who really tries to go looking for the luck yourself. And I think there was a couple of examples. One was how you paid for your first racing, a bit of a wheeler and dealer or something like that. <laughs> was there some story there? I was in the the boarding house at school, and um, actually to 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 buy my first bike, um, I because I was I was one of the only ones who who left the school grounds to go outside to go and ride my bike for for training. So I was I was the only one really who was able to get any contraband uh, that that the guys wanted in the boarding house. So anything really, any cigarettes, alcohol. Um, of course, it'd be a hundred percent markup on on anything, but uh, <laughs> so businessman. <laughs> but it, yeah, it managed to pay for my first bike and uh, my first uh, proper racing bike, and then uh, got into it like that. Cool, that's a that's a nice and then nice story. And then there was another one um, where there was a bit of a sneaky edge to it as well. I think where um, the, the way you got into your first competition wasn't that. Um, so this story is actually the first time I ever got to Europe because you can imagine as, as a as a youngster growing up in Africa, it's like, okay, I've got this dream of becoming a professional cyclist, but how am I going to get a, a European cycling team to notice me when I'm when I'm I'm a kid in Africa riding a bike around Africa? Like no one's going to pay any attention to to anything I do back there. So. I wanted to enter myself into the world championships. Um, I, I figured if I go to the world championships and I train as hard as I can and, and get into the best shape possible, I'll, I'll be able to catch someone's attention there. But to get an entry into the world championships, 
obviously I'd, I'd have to be part of a national team and I, I just wasn't on the radar, I wasn't on the system. But um, I'd been doing some events in Kenya, um, some local events, and the, the, the president of the Kenyan Cycling Federation had asked me, basically his English wasn't very good, and he'd asked me to send some emails from his, from his account to help him really with uh, some logistics or something. And while I had his password and his, his login to his email, I basically entered myself into the world championships. How cool so you is can that? imagine this, this kid from Kenya just pitching up at the world championships on my own, no support team or anything. I just pitched up there, walked into the manager's meeting. I said, yeah, yeah, I'm the, I'm the manager. I sat there, got all the briefing notes and everything of how everything had to happen. Got myself onto the start line, uh, obviously flew down the starting ramp and after a hundred meters, I crashed straight into the first like a uh, commissaire standing on, on the corner, which was, so, I mean, it was definitely, definitely a way to make an entrance into professional cycling, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it's quite a, quite a story. I mean, it, I think it goes to show again, just that whole, um, my, my mentality has never been, especially in professional sport. I don't believe anything is given to you for free. I think you have to work extremely hard. Uh, you need luck, but you make your own luck as well. So, I mean, getting myself over there was, was just a start, but um, I, think, I think it just obviously showed how, how ambitious I was and how, how badly I wanted to, to get over. But I, I really believe that, yeah, that of course every successful person has had luck along, along the way. 100%. But so much of that is you make it yourself. It's yeah. really, it's both, yeah? yeah? And I really, I'm very much convinced of that as well. Have you got any? Have you got any cool little stories about when when you got in and things you had to do to um, to get well, yourself that drive? Well, of course, I came from a much um, more privileged background sure. in that sense. Yeah, so sure. of course, growing up in a wealthy family, so that made things in many ways easier. Yeah, a little bit. But then I guess also there was a lot more expectation on your shoulders. Yeah, that's uh, very true. From very early on, everybody was just looking at me and comparing me to my dad right from since I'm 10 years old yeah and that, that's tough that's true yeah so that's the, there's one advantage which is it's easier financially but then there's the pressure on the other side which makes it a lot more difficult and my dad was world champion so <laughs> to to rise to those expectations is always going to be massively difficult so that was yeah that was quite a but did quite you a did you always grow up as a kid like always like looking at your dad thinking that's that's what i want to do one day yeah he was the inspiration yeah yeah okay, he was the inspiration cool. because just coming through when i was like 10 years old i was watching him race and and it's just it was amazing the cars the the the, awesome. the fans the battling the racing the winning it was just unbelievable yeah. and so that's really where where my dream also was born started uh, yeah. to do it myself how did, it, how did the inspiration come for you? No, definitely. And I, I mean, even going back to the days when I was living in Kenya, I, I didn't even, I didn't even know what the Tour de France was. I mean, I'd never, never seen it on television. It wasn't broadcast there. Um, I don't think I really even watched much television when I was growing up there. It was a bit unorthodox. It was the captain of the Kenyan cycling team. I'd uh, gone along to a, a charity event and I, I met this guy who, he had dreadlocks. I mean, quite, quite a character, but just like one of those guys who's just so full of life and so, uh, just passionate about the sport. And you could see just, he, he passed that passion on to everyone around him. He, he said to me at the time, he's like, yeah, come, come join us for a few training rides. And I, I took him up on the offer, of course. 
and uh, just just fell in love with it. Fell in love with it, and for me, I think he he became uh, that that idol for me. That's also repetitive. That there's always these characters that somehow come from nowhere and then become so crucial in in the in the all the rest of the career. Huh? And we, yeah. I often see that as well in in successful stories that suddenly these people come in from nowhere and. And so probably an advice can be to really try and embrace those those moments when people like that appear, huh? I guess. Yeah, that's, 100%. That's the best uh, message, maybe. That's it. And um, I, uh, do I do I have somebody like that? Not Your really. Your dad, I guess? Yeah, well, okay. to but, an uh, extent, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, my father, of course, yeah, totally. He was... But I didn't really embrace that that much. <laughs> I struggled. Okay. Okay. I struggled to listen to his advice. <laughs> that was never easy, unfortunately. <laughs> And do you think that coming from a childhood like that also made you stronger and mentally, or do you think not really that actually it's more in you just genetically that you have this uh, great mental strength? Um, I don't really know where that where that where that drive comes from. If I'm if I'm really honest, I mean, I think it's uh, yeah, it was just something that a burning desire from from when i got bitten by that cycling bug that i wanted to get into cycling i wanted to become a professional cyclist and i was just like i'm not this isn't something i'm gonna let slip i'm gonna absolutely give it everything i've got and find a way to make it happen that's just just the way i am i don't know where where i've got that from or or how how i came about it but i think um i'm also the kind of personality that when i when i focus on something I give it absolutely all of my attention, um, and it doesn't doesn't matter what's going on going on on the sidelines. I I can just focus on one thing, absolutely 110. percent That's a that's a that's a great strength, isn't it? To to really get rid of distractions then, um, because distractions are in, in today's <sighs> world. Yeah, it's yeah. all over the place, isn't it? So you think that's really something think, you're, you're good at? Yeah. Top level sportsmen. I mean, I guess you, you could probably tell me the same about uh, about drivers. I mean that. You just you almost have to have that 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 single-minded focus on 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 the sport that you're doing. Otherwise, you're just not going to make it. I'm not sure. I mean, look at my my ex-teammate Lewis Hamilton. I don't know if you follow a little bit what he does. He is all over the shop. I mean, just absolutely all over it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's yeah. doing in the last race. He was doing Will Smith uh, social media stunts in, uh, right before the race. Yeah. Like with with fans going crazy and this and that, they made a whole movie more or less on social media just before the race. Like for me, that would have been unimaginable. Yeah, I mean, I would have messed up my start one hundred percent guaranteed, <laughs> and yet he delivers always. I guess so. Um, may, so I think it's not a given. Yeah, maybe maybe not a given, but yeah, I guess you have uh, have these freaks who stand out and, yeah. and can just do stuff like that. Yeah. And I think we've seen that in cycling actually too. There's been some who are just so incredibly talented that they can beat the opposition even if they don't have that total commitment and, and sure. discipline. There's been examples, no? Sure. Would, sure, would yeah, you be yeah, able yeah, to name yeah, one? Yeah. Or? I'd say uh, someone like um, Peter Sagan at the moment. Really? Um, he's like that? I'd say he's a guy who's probably, I mean, just, I, I, I don't know him that well personally, but just from the outside, it looks like he's he's just all over the place doing all kinds of different things. He's skiing one weekend. Uh, mountain biking another weekend doing like all kinds of random stuff but then he pitches up at the race and just like kills everyone so um yeah i guess there, there are a few freaks out there yeah no but it's <laughs> the, the same the rest of us we've got to actually work hard and just block <laughs> everything else out exactly that's true yeah um maybe uh i wanted to skip over also to to um one of your great 
well, competitors and actually teammates as well, because there's some synergies maybe to, to the situation that I was in. And that's sure. why it's quite interesting. So the first, uh, first time you really had a shot at winning the, the, the Tour de France, which is your big, big, uh, goal. Yeah. Um, you were number two in the team and Bradley sure. was then number one. Yeah. But you were the better cyclist. And how did the, how, how did the team first of all manage that in that situation? And then how, what was your decision process as well to then be obedient rather than just say, I don't give it, I don't care, I don't care. I'm just going to get this win and that's it because I'm the best guy out there. There were definitely a couple moments when, when I thought, right, I'm, I'm just going to go for it now. But, um, yeah, team, the, the team orders and, and the guys calling the shots in the cars were, were straight on to me and called, called me back basically. You could have pulled the plug. <laughs> yeah exactly exactly but i mean the, the difficult part for me was uh trusting really trusting trusting him as the leader given that um in the last if you rewind six months the last big race we'd done so it was the the vuelta España, the tour of spain so similar to the tour de france same three weeks but just in in spain um i'd gone there to support him and he fell apart in the last few days and then at that point the team turned to me and said okay now you have to try and win it And I did the best I could, but I ended up coming second by like 13 seconds. And it was, it was just too late in the race for me really to, to, um, to, to win the overall title. So for me going into that Tour de France, I had this always in my mind thinking, hold on, I am doing the job for this guy, but if he falls apart in the last few days, like I need to be in the best position now to take over again. Like we don't know what's going to happen. And he had never won the Tour de France at that time. I mean, okay, I'd never won it either. But there were a lot of reservations in my mind. And obviously, f following team orders was what I had to do at the time. Um, and and, and I, I, did do, I did do that. I did fall into uh, what the team wanted me to do. And thankfully, we, we did get to Paris actually first and second. Um, he won and I was second. But... Then, then I had my chance, obviously, in, in 2013 to, to go for it uh, 100% for myself. But in, in hindsight, everything everything right, no? Because it's a long game, huh? That yeah, counts, exactly. And you need I mean, the team. The thing is, team... I was also quite young at that time. I mean, I, I had more, more tours to come. Um, he, was, he was at the peak of his career, I guess. And that, that was, um, yeah, that was, that was uh, his, his year. So, I mean, I, I think... Being part of a team, you, you have to make sacrifices here and there. And that, that, that for me was, was one of the sacrifices. I mean, I, I don't regret it. That's, that's sport. I mean, I think you've been in very similar circumstances, I guess, with, with, with uh, Hamilton. Big time, yeah. How did you deal with that? Same, same as you, really. Just played the long game. And, and because I also realized that without the team, I'm not going to be able to do anything. Yeah? And if I go against yeah. the team early on then I'm going to have no support when I need it. And and so maybe even some of the listeners won't remember, but in the championship year that I had in 2016, in Monaco, I was running second and I was really struggling in the rain and Lewis was third and Ricardo was going off in the distance. And so the team said, let Lewis pass. And here I am, I'm leading the championship. Yeah. And fighting with the championship just against him because Ricardo was never going to be a threat. Yeah. And they say, let him pass. It was agreed. That's, that's tough. That's it was a agreed tough one. beforehand that okay. every race, the team still has the duty to win that race. Yeah. So even though you're fighting for the championship, higher priority is winning the race. Okay. So if uh, one guy can't, then there might be a chance that you need to let him pass to give the other guy the shot. 
Okay. So that was pre-agreed. That made it a little bit easier, of course, but still so hard. And he went on to get the win. So he won that race. I dropped further back and finished seventh. And if I wouldn't have let him pass, he would never have come anywhere close to winning. Yeah? So yeah, yeah, I really, yeah, yeah. that was so, so tough. But even in hindsight, totally the right thing. Because I had the full support 100% then for the, from the team behind me. And that is one of those ingredients that are just absolutely necessary to, to come home with a win in the end or for you to then win. If, if you hadn't followed team orders, do you think that would have made things very, very difficult to sort of basically continue the relationship with the team? Yeah, I don't know. If I, if I wouldn't, I mean, it would have been mainly on management level. Yeah, I think everybody yeah. below would even have understood if I wouldn't because yeah. I'm yeah. fighting for the championship. Yeah. But, yeah. I, but on the management level, it would have been so hard. And, you, and management level support is so crucial because oh, so often it it, they have to make a decision. You know? They can't sure. equally treat both. And so yeah. they're trying to always balance it out. But, and so it's really important to have their backing. Yeah. So uh, I think it was... I'd have to agree. I'd have to agree because I, I think pretty much the same for me. Had I gone against team orders there, I would have probably been looking for another team. <laughs> so you were out, of, out of a job. That's it. <laughs> Let's go into something nice then, really, because it's always special. Us, we have this incredible privilege to emo to experience these emotions of winning. Um, sure. And which most people who are now listening or you listening will experience, but in different ways. I think the sporting peaks of you going on the Champs-Élysées and crushing that finish line. Can you uh, just take uh, us through the emotions if you even remember, <laughs> or is it all blank from that first time when you achieved your dream of winning there i mean not even just the first time but i mean every time uh each, each of the four times now that i've i've won the tour de france just yeah you ride i ride on to champs elysees and i you just uh, there's no other street or finish or anything like that in cycling where you just you're filled with the same emotions of i mean it, what it it marks the end of not only just a three-week war on the road against other riders against all the elements against sometimes crazy fans all kinds of things um but for everything to go right for those three weeks is just the chances are so slim and to, to get it all right uh, is just such an amazing feeling and, and getting to paris it just marks the end of that that because i mean just the stress involved that it's like a pressure cooker and when when you reach paris it just feels like everything you can finally just let go and relax and it's it's just the most amazing feeling ever so it's relief first actually and Re then the relief and then and then the joy then 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 actually starts to sink in uh, once you cross the finish line yes. it starts to sink in like what 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 the achievement actually means and yeah how many how many people it touches so i mean it's 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 pretty pretty amazing pretty powerful huh? and yeah for me now retired i don't think i'm going to find an emotion like that very quickly again so that's one of the big problems <laughs> one of the big well, problems what do you leaving. find for you was the the, the, the the sort of the moments that you that stick out in your mind is really like those those shining moments is it is it actually crossing the line in the car or is it standing on the podium or is it what 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 is it for you um my most power i have two probably that are most powerful is one winning monaco for the first time and there it's really crossing the line yeah and it's that moment the finish line is just passing through and it's done cool. and then being in the car on my own yeah monaco the most legendary biggest race of course. i never had the hugest self-belief so i never thought i would ever be able to win that and suddenly i'm there in a mercedes 
and I'm and I'm and I'm winning that thing, and it's my home. Yeah, I grew up here. Yeah, of course. And my my way to school, where my mom drove me to school every day, is through that tunnel. And so now I'm there leading the Grand Prix race, which I've grown up to watch every year. I four uh, as a four year old, I'm sleeping in my bedroom, and nine o'clock in the morning Thursdays, um, before going to school or whatever, the the sound of the V12 engines through the tunnel wake me up. And this is my childhood memory. Ayrton Senna driving through the tunnel with a red and white car with his yellow helmet. No, this no, is my first memories, yeah. And now I'm there, and I'm first, and I'm about to win this thing. No, so that's that's, incredible. that's one of the most powerful moments. Um, also in the after party afterwards, to be honest, that was pretty good. <laughs> we, uh, I think in cycling, you're pretty good at partying as well. Huh? Everybody thinks, oh no, these guys, they won't touch a drink. But I think I've heard, I've heard, heard rumors. You're pretty good at that as well. <laughs> so we're okay with that in Formula One too. Um, and, uh, and the second one was when I won the championship, the first was relief, just as you had. So not the ecstatic, uh, incredible emotions. It was just yeah. relief first because yeah. the pressure was gigantic, like yeah. unbelievable. And then uh, the fun came when my wife came on the radio and said, uh, uh, Moki was, is my, is how she calls me. Uh, we did it. And then that, that clicked suddenly because yeah. I didn't expect it. It came out of the blue. Yeah. And it was my first connection with somebody else because I was on my own yeah. out there. And then my wife saying that in my ears, that was, uh, oh. insane. I mean, I can even yeah, get emotional yeah, yeah. again now. That was, um, <laughs> that's a, a unbelievable moment. So those were, yeah. Oh, cool. You touched on you touched on pressure there, uh, so I would, I would like to sure. uh, go into that a bit because pressure. Everybody, uh, you who's listening as well, you always you feel pressure. All of us feel pressure before yeah. the job interview or the exam or the project that needs to be delivered tomorrow or whatever. Yeah, all of us have it. I would actually most like to go into the one that you get after that first win because I'm sure that that's when the pressure gets to new dimensions. Yeah, because then you're not the underdog anymore. You are the guy that the whole world expects. You're the best now. They expect you to win again. Your team expects you to win. All your teammates expect you to win. They're training the whole year to support you to get that win. How does the how does that change for you then? And how do you deal with that? It's that's a great question. I, th I think especially when you look at um, just historically in cycling, when someone's won the Tour de France, it's generally generally speaking really hard to back it up the year afterwards because everything changes um it, it's not just you don't just go into the winter have your normal um few weeks off and then start training again and you get get into things quietly and and start your preparations for the next season the winter you're being pulled left right and center for all kinds of different engagements and events and uh distractions uh, distractions exactly um and all of a sudden, before you know it, everyone's everyone's training again, and you feel as if you, you haven't even had a break. So you, you almost you need to sort of force yourself back into into rhythm routine, and you start training. And one of the most funny things for me is going to our sort of our, our winter training camp with the team. I'm finding a lot of the younger riders almost like racing you in training, like uh, just pushing you to see basically where if they're better than you or obviously you become now the person who everyone measures themselves against the dynamic changes and i think it, all through all through the season every race you go to there's more media there's there's more attention on you and the, the expectations are higher as well so you can't just go to the first few races of the season and expect to fly under the radar and yeah i'll build into it slowly 
everyone expects you to win and if, if you don't win they're on your case like why, why aren't you winning i mean you won the tour de france so this small race here in portugal or spain or why aren't you winning it definitely changes it changes a lot and i've uh, seen a lot of people really really struggling to to back it up again and for me i think the the most um powerful thing for me to to be able to to have won the tour now f four years and the last five or six years i can't even remember how long it's there's taken. been so many i can't remember um, <laughs> i can't remember exactly it, it, it's just trying to block out all this all this sort of noise on the side and, and almost not let myself get too carried away with with uh, the achievements i mean i I'm, i'm really not the kind of person who thinks sits here and thinks of oh, i've won four four tour de france's i'm i've made it kind of thing i'm always looking ahead at the next thing and um i don't think i really let myself fully switch off yet and i think I've got lots of time for that when, when my career is done. Uh, when I'm 14, I can look back and think, yeah, you know, that's what I've done. I'm happy now. But right now, when I'm still in this right now, I'm, I'm very much looking ahead. And I mean, planning is, is already well underway for, for next year's Tour de France. But this is more your natural side now that you're talking about, I think, which is just you're so damn competitive and just Probably. want more and you want another one and yeah. you just cannot accept that. Um, I mean, you want to win that thing of course again yeah, yeah 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 i mean so that's the, really... the, the big thing for me now is to try and try and join this club of this very sort of elite group there's uh, four people who have ever won the tour de france five times yeah um so i'd, I'd obviously i'd be amazing to become the fifth person in in that group and but doesn't that again put so much from there i mean if you're thinking about that there's probably not the best thing is it because that's going to put so no. much pressure it's, on yourself it's, it's, as well it's pressure but i actually i actually deal really well with pressure like i find pressure uh it's fine it's there but i just keep doing what what i need to do and focused on on everything that i need to be doing so i i know what what i have to achieve and what what's there what the potential is but at the same time i'm, I'm not going to let that throw me off or, or 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 make me make me make mistakes because of uh, the pressure um, one more one more time on the pressure you say these expectations cause more pressure why do you care <laughs> <laughs> yeah true true like, it's I, just, I, I, i'd have to say i i think the, the 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 point where you actually physically feel the pressure is say a race like the tour de france starts and you do the first week um someone else is wearing the yellow jersey it hasn't the race hasn't really got too serious yet because you haven't hit the the the, the really high mountains but the second the second i've always found the second that i put that yellow jersey on my shoulders i found then it feels like okay now it starts um and it, your, your day just gets longer uh recovery time is less um every everyone on the road is f like literally looking to how and how, how to beat you every day so that's where i'd say you really feel the pressure um and guys who who take the yellow jersey early on in the tour de france and and hold it all the way through i mean just chapeau i mean it's 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 a lot of lot of pressure there so maybe just as everybody listening as well as sportsmen we're only human and we also we also want to um satisfy the expectations of other people who are watching us i guess you know, that's sure i guess i guess it's only natural yeah. it, no? it's yeah. only natural that uh, yeah when when there are expectations there you you want to fulfill them and you don't want to be facing those that that negativity when when you don't fulfill expectations yeah
yeah which yeah. all of you uh, also have surely your boss has expectations for you <laughs> listening or your friends or whatever yeah <laughs> sure similar sure. just that in sports it's times hundred thousand because it's just huge what would you say the are the biggest moments for you where where you felt okay this pressure is actually um i have to take a few minutes here to actually remember to to even take a few minutes to breathe because <laughs> you, you just feel as if uh, everything's closing in on you and yeah Uh, and I guess when you're going for a championship, I mean, that's the one. That's yeah. that's got to be enormous. Yeah, that's the one. That was the biggest I've ever felt in sports in general. And couldn't couldn't sleep, couldn't eat, <laughs> couldn't sleep even. Okay. Couldn't sleep, couldn't eat, okay. and the couldn't. And then you go into this spiral, yeah, because which then you think, okay, I'm not sleeping, not eating. I'm not going to be able to perform. Yeah, I need to sleep. I need to eat. Yeah, and it just puts you into this spiral, and then. It's very, it was like unbelievably demanding, really, really the most, one of the most difficult circumstances for me to, to cover. And what really helped me was preparation because I, exactly like you, I had going into that, um, simplified my life totally. So I'd removed everything. I didn't even have a phone. I had nothing and nothing. It was family racing. There was nothing else. Okay. I didn't, Incredible. Zero. Yeah. No, I didn't look once in social media. I didn't read one news for the last six months or five months. I was, I was heavy into meditation as well. So I just, I tried to bring in the, the antidote to pressure, yeah. which was the whole well-being relaxation aspect and tried to reinforce that as much as possible. Yeah. And, and as you know as well, your recovery yeah, yeah. is everything. You actually yeah. improve your performance in your recovery and cycling, that's don't it. you? That's it. And, and that's what, so I really, I put so much effort into the whole recovery and, and, um, balance, uh, area. So meditation, the way I, f uh, the way I was feeding the rhythms, the, The, the focus, everything, yeah? And so that's what then gave me that um, couple of percent more energy, I guess, in those extreme situations. Cool. And then I was in that hotel room again yesterday. And the worst thing was that Friday night, going into that last weekend, three o'clock in the morning, I finally got like three hours where I was able to sleep. And you will not believe it, probably happens once in a lifetime, the halogen bump, bulb from the ceiling, the whole thing, fell onto the sideboard <laughs> in my hotel room. No unbelievable way. and woke me up because it was it was, did the biggest smack in the room like shocked me i was adrenaline through the you roof. must have thought no really i, I was so was going like, on in that room this, how is this possible so i got a whole week of hotel free from uh, from the manager because i told him <laughs> sunday night but unbelievable i mean that was the only thing that was missing yeah it was this damn halogen light bulb that smacks onto the table next to my bed yeah unbelievable uh, crazy uh. And I, I was in, my, in the room on my own because my family was there, but I slept on my own to have really full peace and quiet and, and everything. And so that's what I did to help. But And it worked out. It was just uh, just enough. Cool. Anyway, um, low points. I think that's that's important to, to cover. Yeah. Um, is the crashing out of Tour de France one or would it be something else? Um, yeah, I'd probably say uh, crashing out of a race is probably... Uh, as low as it gets for us so Some, then, something like obviously it's with france you you spend months uh getting ready for these events and if two three days in you have a crash and oh, like i did in, in 2014 uh, day three or four um i does a touch of wheels just in front of me i uh, slipped um and broke my uh, scaphoid on my hand and it's just like I even at that point, okay, I got, I got to the finish that day. We taped it up and, and tried to sort of make a sort of a makeshift splint because I just didn't. And the next day was actually a cobble day. So on, on cobbles, it's just a, it's like probably one of the toughest, 
kinds of stages you could put in a race like the Tour de France. And I still went into that stage with a with a broken scaphoid, and I I, I told myself that I might be able to hang on and and get through, but. I, I crashed twice before we even saw a cobble, uh, just because crashed I crashed again, <laughs> again twice, just because I couldn't control my bike because his hand was completely oh just swollen goodness. and uh, bandaged up and everything. And that was the second time I crashed on that on that day. I just okay, I have to accept that's uh, the last six months of preparation is down the drain, and I've just got to cut my losses and and start again and focus on the Tour of Spain, which is coming up in the next two months. So. I mean, that's the thing with, with disappointment like that, I, I guess, as any, and maybe not even only in sport, but in, in, in other areas of life, you have disappointments everywhere. I mean, they, they, you can't, you can't always tell what's going to happen. You can't always plan for these things, but some, sometimes things just go wrong and you have to accept when they do cut your losses and, and refocus on, on building back up again. Um, there's nothing, there's nothing easy about it. And sometimes, uh, like, like in my case, I lost a lot of, uh, a lot of preparation, months and months of preparation, but that's, that's how it goes. And, uh, yeah, I'm sure every, every sportsman has got loads of stories about things that go wrong and, uh, how you, how you overcome that and, and get back to, to where you are, especially concerning injuries. But has sport maybe also taught, you know, to, to learn how to, how to come back from from low point points no in general probably because we just experienced so many extreme ones yeah maybe, no i think so i think so uh, I, and i mean i i always stay so so um so much in the future always looking ahead i don't really spend much time dwelling if, if something happened last week if i crashed and got an injury I, i i don't spend a lot of time really being hung up on on, on the injury or the crash or anything and that's strong. just just put it out of my mind and try and carry on but Yes, everyone's uh, everyone's got their own way of, of coping with things. Yeah, well, that sounds sounds like a strong asset, of course. Yeah. Did you ever get any sort of serious injuries from car crashes or anything? Uh, no, no, I was lucky. I was I was lucky because uh, I had one big shunt in in Monaco here, two thousand eight in the wet, and just total because it was hard barrier. There was no tires or anything, so it was just completely into the hard barrier, and that was a big one. Oof. Yeah, and actually, I uh, I had a little bit of an eye issue from that shunt. Which now came back to haunt me two weeks ago. Wow! So I had to have a small operation. Okay. Um, okay. So it was one of those things that reminded But me. But did that um, did that put you out of of training and everything at the time? For no, no, no. It's uh, okay. Uh, yeah, probably the doctor said say just relax a bit for a week or so. Okay. But it, it was okay. It didn't, yeah, nothing, it didn't affect your whole nothing, season or anything. No, nothing major. Uh, I think probably your sport might even be a bit more crazy than <laughs> that ours. <laughs> ours is pretty crazy. I mean, but I think you probably take it to the next level. The uh, speeds, the speeds you guys go is obviously next level. But I think. Um, Given the amount of protection we have with our two millimeter lycra, oh my goodness, that's uh, yeah, not much fun when you come off. <laughs> and do you, do you sometimes have moments of being a bit scared, or you're just a total nutcase and uh, um, no no fear? There are a few moments. There are a few moments, especially since I've had kids. I think where you just find yourself on the brakes a little bit more than than previously, especially if you if you're going. For me, when it's dry, it, it feels fantastic. You can take any corner as fast as you want almost. But when it's wet and raining and, and guys are going close to 100 kilometers an hour downhill, like when, when you're just using brakes that take like two, three seconds to even engage, 
it's it's crazy it's crazy i mean you ride so close together and you just think if one guy comes off he's going to take 20 people with him and it's it's something that's completely outside of your control so you just have to have faith in the people around you that that everyone's going to be sensible and you do sometimes catch yourself with those thoughts or you really or you um, yeah, so, sometimes sometimes you catch yourself thinking and you you do back off a little bit because you just think hold on if this guy gets it wrong <laughs> all of you are going down so you, you you find yourself backing off a bit and actually going out to the side maybe and taking a bit of wind instead of uh, being in the slipstream just so you're safer and your family has had or your your kids have had a small I, i'd say since i've had kids since i've had kids maybe i uh, i'm not as reckless as i as i used to be i i i don't think i um it hasn't really changed my my racing but i i just say i, I think twice now before going around the blind corners as fast as i can yeah that's nice and now um uh, kids uh, family of course then just touching on to Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it is a huge sacrifice, isn't it? Still, to to be uh, the top uh, in, in your world of sport, isn't it? And how how are you finding that balance? Does it feel you're finding a good, yeah, good enough I mean, balance there for yourself? It's it's, it's amazing. Actually. I mean, I I think this is where I have to give huge credit to my wife because um, I know all about that. <laughs> uh, f- 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 I mean, sh- she's just so independent and and um, is basically puts up with with me being away so so much and she's basically raising two kids on her own um and even even when i'm home and i'm in full training i mean sometimes i'm sleeping in another room um i get back from training i'm obviously so tired i've uh, just done a full day on the road or whatever uh, i'm not exactly um ready to to take over and go and play with the kids and stuff i, I need to put the feet up and relax or eat or something so i mean it's it's um i'd have to say it, it's got to be tough on her um but she's yeah she's done an amazing job and i think thanks to her i can i can stay pretty much 100 focused on on what i need to do to to stay at the top of the sport so at that at this point big respect to all mothers out there listening yeah definitely <laughs> Un- no, unbelievable a, though. <laughs> this um this off season actually this winter when obviously I, i took a few weeks off and i wasn't training um i thought okay well i've got no excuse now i'm not i'm not training every day so i'll i'll, I'll do a few we've got a three month year old daughter so uh she must have been about a month old so i i, I thought okay I'll, i'll i'll take her for a few nights and uh try and do the night shift and tell you i i found this huge respect for for what mothers go through because i mean they literally don't sleep for more than uh three hours at a time it's it's incredible so uh, the next day you decided to anticipate your uh so re- the, the training starts training started again <laughs> straight away and uh straight back into my preparations <laughs> no i mean yeah huge respect huge respect it's uh it's a massive job we have two we're in a very similar situation because we have two and they're just, i think just offset by one year so us is three okay. and one year old yeah and we i mean it's completely maxed out yeah i don't oh, know how mothers yeah. do or, or families do with three no. I mean, already two I, feels maximum. Yeah. two feels like you're both uh yeah. completely yeah, yeah. Uh, busy all the time but yeah i think uh yeah <laughs> i think we're, we're both extremely fortunate to have uh, understanding wives 
And you were, did you start to have that feeling a little bit that, uh, oh, you're also looking forward to the time afterwards where you would, it would be a very different life and you would be much more with the, with the kids or, yeah. or for now or not? Yeah, definitely. Not really. yeah. Definitely. I, th I think, um, especially as they get older, um, and, and as a father, you can actually do, do more with the kids as, as they're growing up. I think, um, certainly, um, I'm looking forward to that time, but, um, it's, it's not, uh, I, I wouldn't say that's the, the limiting factor on my career or anything like that. So it's, uh, I think as, as long as for me, as long as I'm enjoying riding my bike and I'm, I'm not finding it tough to, to, to keep focused on, on what I need to do, then, um, then I'm going to keep doing it for as long as I can. How, how are you with your self confidence? Do you have, um, such things as self doubts now as well? Cause <laughs> I mean, last year you didn't manage to win it. Yeah. yeah. You can. yeah. Uh, you came close, but uh, you didn't manage, and no. you're, not, you're not getting younger. No, no, um, no. Do you have self doubts yeah, as well? I, then going I, into I next year, I don't think there's a professional athlete out there who hasn't had some kind of uh, serious doubt doubt issues along the line. Um, I mean, it's you. I think it's it's almost in our in our DNA as as uh, professional sportsmen to to always be questioning yourself and doubting, am, am I fit enough? Am I strong enough? Um, and I think that's, that's something that probably for me drives me, drives me a lot to, to, to train even harder and, and push myself even harder to, to get ready for the big races. That's why I covered that actually in one of my previous uh, podcasts as well, that the fear of failure is actually, you can use that yeah. as a huge motivator. Yeah, it's, a, driving it's a huge force. positive. It's a yeah. huge positive. Yeah. You, you don't want to be the guy who, who doesn't make it or doesn't doesn't do what everyone expects of you so yeah. it's uh it's a it's a strong it's a strong tool for sure um so to end this um this chat uh can we see you on the top step then again in the tour de france listen i'd, I'd love to i'd love to <laughs> love to be there i mean it's uh yeah i'm already starting starting uh all the preparations now to to get ready for it so i'm gonna give it everything i've got We'll be, uh, we'll be cheering you on. I, I love the sport. I've always, I'm always watching every single year. So Thanks. Thanks I really, a lot. really, really like it. And it's awesome. really, really impressive to watch. Um, one more, uh, a small add on. So I just, uh, I just bought myself actually a, a Van Moof, uh, electric bicycle, which is okay. like a Tesla of electric bikes. Is there any, uh, really crazy anecdote where you've actually seen someone use, uh, there's so many rumors out there. <laughs> someone's actually plugged a little electric engine is it real that it's actually so happened the, the, in professional are, cycling or not there are all these rumors that that there are there are or were professional cyclists who who used them in races but i personally don't don't see that happening really? i just i just can't believe it i <laughs> well maybe i just don't want to believe that um there on the start line racing against someone who's got an engine in their bike <laughs> and they still but, don't have a chance against you <laughs> but no i mean um actually something quite interesting so since um oh, as, as long as i can remember really since i started getting serious with um with the big races since 2012 they were already scanning our bikes um so you get to the finish line and they put like a tag on your bike and that bike can't leave the finish area until it's been fully scanned and uh so now they scan them they they put it in an x-ray machine um and actually check with all kinds of different sensors and whatever to see if there's any any kind of a motor or a hidden engine inside the bike so i i just can't see how anyone could get away with it but 
I guess the rumors will always be there. But if they do these checks, it means that something did happen once upon a time. <laughs> Usually. No one's <laughs> ever been caught. But yeah, yeah, the checks are there for a reason. And uh, I'm actually quite glad they are there. <laughs> it stops, stops the temptation, I guess, for anyone who does, does want to try and put one in. Um, I just want to cover the, uh, the, the Team Sky approach with... Um, It's called marginal gains, sure. yeah, but many little gains add up to, to make a big improvement. Yeah. And many of us, and maybe you as a listener also, sometimes don't put effort into the little steps and just try and go for the big ones all the time yeah. and miss out on all the little steps. Yeah. Can you tell, this is one of the I big think, secrets huh, from yeah, Team Sky yeah, success. Definitely, definitely. Can you give two, yeah, I mean, it's, two it's, fun examples? It, it's, it's something that people really, really take the piss out of us with. It's like, oh, yeah, marginal gains. You're going to go and win the Tour de France because you've got a special mattress or something. Yeah. <laughs> so, come on. But, I mean, jokes aside, you think about it. You're moving, you're moving hotels every single night for three weeks uh, uh, during the Tour de France. And some of the hotels, uh, quite frankly, uh, I mean, they're like uh, hostels. <laughs> they're like, there's no space to even open a suitcase inside the room. And there's two of you in there. And uh, the bed is like a, half the time you've got like a kid's bed or something like that. It's, just, it, it's really bad sometimes. Why don't you use a motorhome that follows you around? Uh, which would be fantastic. And the team actually came up with that idea as one of our marginal gains. Uh, so we, 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 we rented a bunch of motorhomes, brought them to the start of the Tour de France and the... Uh, the governing body of cycling went and changed the rules and said no way you have to sleep in the accommodation of uh, what's provided for you otherwise it's an unfair disadvantage and you'll be kicked out the race if you don't sleep in, no in way, the no so it's become like this this running joke now but seriously i mean so the team pack up eight beds eight riders uh each each rider has their own mattress pillow duvet um, that travels to every single hotel and goes like uh, ahead of the race And it's, it's basically waiting for you at the next hotel so that every night you get the same, same, uh, same night's sleep, basically. Um, and it's just one of these little things. I mean, recovery is super important. So, I mean, sleep is super important. So why wouldn't you focus on these kind of things? Um, that's just, that's just one example. Um, but the, the team's full of them. If you look at how we do our nutrition and all, there's all kinds of little things where, um, Yeah, which we would call marginal gains, but well, obviously all these little things will help you do your job better and at the end of the day make it easier for you as a professional. Yeah. Well, that's a great, uh, for sure, one of the important ingredients. Huh? So dear listener, focus on the small things too, as a <laughs> conclusion. Get a good thank bed. You, thank you very much. <laughs> Cheers, really, thanks a really, lot. Really, really interesting. Thanks for taking the time. Oh, that's good fun. And yeah, we'll be watching. Thanks, thanks a thank lot. Thank you. Appreciate it. Dear listener, thank you very much for listening in to Beyond Victory. I really hope there were a few learnings you could take away from my chat with Chris. A new episode will be coming out in two weeks' time, Monday night at six. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast, give me a rating if you're new as well, and I really hope you tune in for the next one. Bye-bye. <laughs>